This is unstructured. Today we have Brian Dunning. Brian Dunning is a podcaster behind Skeptoid. He's also a filmmaker and a science writer, and he has a new book coming out. Well, it's coming out today, as a matter of fact. Conspiracies Declassified, The Skeptoid Guide to the Truth Behind the Theories. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's really awesome having you. And I want to discuss kind of your path into getting where you are. I don't think you took a linear path into podcasting, much like the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't really a linear path into podcasting. Um, And for me, uh, so I've been doing it 11 years since 2006. And uh, for me, I came into it just kind of as a side hobby, something I had a number of kind of rants that I wanted to get off my chest, (laughs) decided, hey, a podcast would be a way to do that. And I had a background in uh, computer science and writing for film and television, two fairly disparate fields. Uh, I'd never really worked professionally in in either field much. Um, And when um, podcasting became a thing, it's like, wow, here's, here's the perfect way to converge all of my interests all in, all in one place. And uh, I was fortunate that after doing just a few episodes, um, of course it was much easier back then because anyone with a podcast was immediately a big fish in a small pond back in 2006. So it was much easier back then to kind of quickly jump to the top of the charts and get to get a, build a large following quickly. And I've been very fortunate in that the type of show that I happen to do happens to be one that a lot of people really like and and stick with. So it uh, became a full-time gig for me after about two years, uh, incorporated two years after that, uh, became a nonprofit three years after that. And, uh, and here we are today, trying to produce a documentary film each year, um, getting more into uh, wrapping the content for educational purposes. Uh, the podcast continues pretty much unabated and unchanged, but uh, we're just taking it a little bit more seriously in terms of the way that we offer it to people in education and just to the general public who enjoy listening for fun. So it's a, it's, it's a really rewarding combination of education and entertainment. That's a really interesting path. So essentially as soon as it got legs and was a viable option, I guess you incorporated then and were able to make it your day job. But then you said you, what was it? Two years later, you decided to become a nonprofit. What was behind the um, idea of saying, you know what? I, I want to do this as a nonprofit versus the business that I have now. So there were, there were two things, essentially. Number one was that the place where the, the podcast seemed to have the most penetration and get the most engagement was in the education field. I was, and I still do, getting invited to go speak at universities and stuff all the time. Uh, and teachers were sending me lesson plans that they'd created around sets of the episodes. And... Um, Becoming, uh, becoming useful in education is just professionally and personally very rewarding. Um, so I really enjoyed focusing on that, uh, on that aspect of it. And the other reason that made me go that way was uh, back then, uh, this was 2012-ish. Back in 2012, donations were still a large part of the business model of podcasting, although the percentage of listeners who donate to podcasts has been steadily dropping since 2011 as as advertising has come to become more what listeners are expecting. Uh, so uh, 
being able to allow people to make tax deductible donations uh, and accommodate larger gifts, uh, private grants and donations to really keep the company viable has been a, a key part of the ability to stay in business. So, you know, the company is small, but it's healthy. Um, got three employees now, uh, a really great board of directors, a really great board of advisors, and a few people who contract with the projects regularly. Uh, it's just super fun professionally and rewarding. That's excellent. And um, is it also a case that you may pick up uh, different income streams like public speaking may be one stream and you combine it with something else or, you know, just kind of cobble everything together in order to be a viable concern? Yeah. I mean, of course we always, always trying to throw as many things at the wall to see what we see, what sticks. Um, uh, the public speaking that we do is mostly uh, that I do, I guess I've been doing it all uh, is, is it's rarely for much money. Uh, if we can get the expenses covered, that's great. There's a lot of demand, but that demand comes from teachers and stuff who no don't always have the budget to bring someone in. So uh, that hasn't uh, hasn't uh, turned out to be a great income for the company. It's uh, still overwhelmingly uh, private grants and donations, mostly small monthly uh, recurring micropayments from people who access the premium version of the show. That's where uh, almost all the company's income comes from. Okay. One thing I hope you get a chance to come in this area. You're definitely needed. We have a uh, wackiness on both sides. We have Pat Robertson on one side. We have Edgar Cachey on the other side. Oh dear. So, <laughs> there is a definitely lots of lunacy in the Virginia beach area. Yeah. Well, I live in Oregon. I, I I'm lifetime Southern California, but uh, we moved to Oregon, permanently relocated the company here uh, last year. And, Oregon is, it's Oregon. Uh, you know, we've got the country's lowest vaccination rate and uh, alternative everything. Of course, there's so many people I can talk to in the country that say, oh, my town has more woo than anywhere else. Well, you're in so, hipster central. I'm not sure who wins that argument. I don't know. You, you've, you've got a good case. I mean, I haven't been there, but I know Oregon's famous for hipsters and uh, others. <laughs> I don't mind the hipster aspect of it because that comes along with a lot of great microbreweries. So that part's working out quite well. That's true. And there's legalization there. <laughs> yeah, which, of which I do not imbibe. So that doesn't do a lot ah, for me. Okay. Out, out of curiosity, um, what is it that drew you into the skeptical framework? Is it just a slide on Steve Jobs presentation or was it something that ate at you? <laughs> so it was, uh, like most people who, uh, you know, if, if I have to describe my profession in a single term, I, I go with science writer. And most people who are in this business that I've had this conversation with all followed a really similar path to get here. We were fans of science fiction, fantasy, paranormal, all of that stuff as, as kids, reading all of those books, just being interested in these topics. For me, my biggest passion was books on UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot. And I believed every word that I read. And being of a science bent, studying science and computer science in college and just always being interested in science, uh, I eventually learned to take a science-based view at all of those topics. And what I quickly discovered was that the true science behind these popular urban legends 
was much more fascinating than the urban legends themselves. So by the time podcasting came around, I'd already had a lifetime of just wonderful discovery, kind of busting the myths that I'd heard for myself, learning what was actually going on behind them, and discovering that there's just this terrific world of, of new discoveries underneath these things in pop, pop culture that most people don't bother to look underneath. So that's, you know, that's the heart of, of the Skeptoid podcast. That's, that's what I enjoy. That's awesome. Would you consider, maybe I'm wrong, that confirmation bias would be behind 90% of um, these wild claims and the, the persistence of them? Yeah, I, I, certainly. A confirmation bias and, uh, and just humans' natural tendency toward anecdotal thought patterns. Uh, you know, looking at what seems obvious and what our brain can quickly wire together as a as a good enough explanation for things. That's uh, that's as far as almost everyone goes into almost everything that they hear. And as you point out, confirmation bias, you know, our, our, our tendency to to see what agrees, what confirms with and agrees with our preconceived notions and to not notice, not understand, gloss over anything that doesn't um, it. It. It's enough for most people to confirm for them that, you know, organic food is healthier or ghosts are real or, or cell phones are giving us all cancer. Whatever the belief is, uh, yeah, there's more than enough, certainly on the Internet and just from talking to friends to confirm just about any strange belief you want to come up with. Yeah, I'm thinking about it and maybe I was exposed to great educational television as a kid, but I was a huge fan of Scooby-Doo. Oh yes. Oh sure. Yeah. <laughs> that whole show actually was a debunking show. Yeah, it is. It, uh, it, it, however, my, my, my only complaint with Scooby-Doo and I agree with you, that was a, that was a hugely influential for me as well. Uh, you know, un, doing the unmasking, pulling the mask off of the, the caretaker at the camping park. Um, my only my only quibble with with Scooby Doo is that the debunking that they do on that stops short. It simply stops at the end of the negative part of the process, which is taking away the ghost, taking away the mystery, and it doesn't take the next step, which I feel is the most important one, which is then to discover the real science and to come away with a new positive lesson rather than just simply having a, a negative debunking experience. Yeah, I think you've discussed that before that you had actually done a show and it stopped at that point and you you felt that being in the skeptical world sometimes you're taking away things versus giving people things and that can lead to a negative result set. Very much so. Yeah, the straight up debunking is inherently negative. And I try to, I really strive to make every one of my shows uh, to be a positive process that gives someone something new. I would never do a show just saying ghosts aren't real. You know, you probably saw a shadow or something. You're stupid. <laughs> and, and that's what, you know, most of pop culture debunking consists of. Instead, it's like, can we find, um, can we find a really cool perceptual phenomenon uh, a psychological phenomenon, something that would explain why um, a large number of people share a similar experience. Uh, just as an example, um, I'm talking to a friend of my daughter's yesterday who has been having sleep paralysis episodes, mm. waking up in the middle of the night and there's a 
tall, terrifying, phantom-like creature standing at the bedside. Now, this is thoroughly established mm-hmm. in, in sleep science and, 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 and psychology, these sleep paralysis episodes and the inability to move as you're experiencing this apparition standing in front of you. There is a lot of really cool, fascinating science behind what's going on, why this happens, how it happens, uh, related issues like the figure that you see changes geographically around the world based on the, the urban legends in that culture. If you've heard a lot about gray aliens, you're more likely to see a gray alien standing at your foot, at the foot of your bed. If you're from a Slavic country, you'll see this little Slavic character. If you're from India, you'll see a character I believe they call the Mohine. Uh, that's really cool. And that's where you can bring a lesson to someone rather than just telling them, no, you stupid idiot. That was just sleep paralysis. Uh, well, perhaps I'm being a little bit, uh, hyperbolic. Most people don't say you stupid idiot, but <laughs> I think, I think the point comes across on that note. Um, I've heard this recently. I'm pro- I'm sure you've heard it a long time ago because you're way on top of it. But the, um, the fact that alien abductions, that there's such a common theme, especially, you know, specifically here in America of, you know, rear entry, whatever pulled into the darkness, things like that. There was some recent speculation that that was people having a flashback to childbirth. I I, I hadn't heard that. uh, But what does seem pretty clear, uh, going back to the episode that I did on sleep paralysis, which was some years ago now. So uh, whether there's been anything new since then, I probably haven't read it. But at the time when I did the show, um, there had been uh, a large, um, a, some pretty large data sets had been collected surveying people who had experienced sleep paralysis, where and when it, it took place, and correlating the character that they reported seeing. And it seems clear that in the United States, sort of the case zero of alien abductions was the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction case in the late 1960s, which is when the characters that they drew in their, in their uh, hypnosis sessions uh, were basically what we would consider to be a gray alien today. And once that be- entered the pop consciousness, uh, then we started seeing a huge trend and huge uptick in the gray aliens being what people would report during sleep paralysis episodes. So it's just a, it's a case of uh, something that you see in pop culture influencing your dreams. Um, and it's like the mafia. That was uh, at the time when I did the show, that was kind of the, uh, that was the big lesson to learn and what I found most fascinating. Yeah. That is one of those, which comes first. I know that um, they've discussed how the mobsters and the mafia were influenced by Hollywood versions of the monsters, you know, mobsters and mafia. Mm. one acted like in the other there's a star trek episode about that kind of funny um let me see on that note um you you mentioned correlation i think you talked about that as being one of the uh, biases um a mix-up of correlation and causation kind of like um ice cream causes shark attacks (laughs) uh eating rice causes black hair exactly do you want to go into that at all how it affects your field Confusion of correlation and causation. Um, Pretty much, we we see this a lot with uh, all of the, uh, all of these beliefs that we have in uh, modern toxins, modern 
things in modern culture like our iPhones or, or our toothbrush, whatever it is, uh, causing some mystery illness or Diet Coke causing cancer. And, and, and uh, there's, there's a, a, great, a great version of that is the fact that uh, there's a huge correlation among diet soda drinkers and obesity. Mm. And so many people in the sort of the, the naturalistic camp are trying to say, see, drinking soda makes you fatter. It doesn't make drinking diet soda makes you fatter. It doesn't make you skinnier. Well, the reason for this simply is that the people who tend to be heavier are the ones who seek out diet soft drinks trying to lose weight. It's not the, the, the causation doesn't go the other way around. In many cases, it's hard to know which direction the causation arrow is. And in many cases, there is no causation arrow. Um, there's that famous little uh, graph showing uh, the, the rise of autism mm -hmm. um, with the popularity of organic food. Because during the same period in modern history where we've been expanding and improving autism diagnoses, and we've seen the number of diagnoses uh, rising, that correlates very well with the rise of the organic fad. So you can easily draw a graph to prove that, uh, hey, uh, it's eating organic food that's causing autism. So you know, it can be abused and it can simply be misunderstood and honestly mis misunderstood in most cases. And that's just one more thing that causes people to hold on to a weird belief. Now, um, I forget the name of the manual. It's like the DM something or another, the psychology manual. Um, part of the... yeah. The DSM, DSM-5. Yeah, DSM. Thank you. Yeah. If I recall, the part of the reason that there's so many more autism cases is they've expanded the definition. Yes. So if you say, okay, it can include yes, these the, people. The definition has been expanded. That's re responsible for most of them. Plus, there's been a reduction in the stigma. Uh, people didn't want their kids diagnosed. If their kid was having learning disabilities or socialization problems or developmentally uh, was behind uh, people didn't want them to be labeled. People didn't want them to to be uh, stigmatized, maybe suffer some uh, setbacks as a result of having this diagnosis. And so people weren't getting their people, their, their kids diagnosed. And I, I hate to say this because it sounds horrible, but it's almost become now mm -hmm. a fad to have an autistic child or in some cases. Uh, my wife is a my wife has a master's in psychology and she works with autistic children who are trying to be integrated into a regular school curriculum and and we see this kind of thing a lot where families almost consider it, you know, a, a badge of honor to have an autistic child um, in, in some cases, uh, which is kind of kind of creepy. <laughs> but uh, it, it's this combination of factors that we that has caused the number of people diagnosed with autism to skyrocket. There's no reason to think uh, that the actual number of people who are on the spectrum has has changed significantly at all. Uh, it, that's quite clear when we when we control for all of these factors and and still look back at the data over the decades. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any change in that. So um, people looking at the wrong graph. If you're looking simply at the graph of number of diagnoses, you're going to get the wrong idea. Well, I think it's become a fad too because of um, very famous Asperger's um, cases like um, Zuckerberg and. Bill Gates. We don't know if they have it, but they kind of demonstrate it and. Parents are like, well, look at them. They're geniuses. They run Facebook. They do this and that. So, yeah. oh, my kid is like that. Steven Spielberg. Yeah, they're certainly promoted in, in, in culture as being that way. 
you hear their their names are being trotted out and trumpeted every time we're talking about Asperger's. Yeah, so there, that might be part of it. Um, you have some different um, methodologies that you've discussed before. Um, challenge, consider, conclude. Can you go into that mm-hmm. a little? So our our documentary film from 2017, which I absolutely love, and I think it's the best thing I've ever done, Principles of Curiosity. Uh, what I wanted to do with this film was to kind of package a sort of a quick and easy McDonald's type version of the skeptical uh, scientific skepticism process, something that anyone could learn and anyone could follow. And so we made a film suggesting these three steps. Um, and we, I call them the principles of curiosity, challenge, consider, and conclude the three C's online now at principles of curiosity.com. Uh, so <laughs> you hear, you hear some strange idea in pop culture and just, uh, to be consistent, let's stick with the example we were just talking about that, um, that uh, we, we think that the number of autism cases has been rising. So we hear that, you know, at the, at the restaurant from our friends. So the first step is to challenge. C number one is to challenge. We challenge this idea. First of all, we see if it's even true to begin with. And you can do that by doing a bit of research online. We talk a little bit about in the film about how to find a better source compared to a worse source. But uh, one thing that you will see is that, yes, it is true that the number of autism diagnoses has been going up. So it has passed the first, uh, the, the claim has passed the first, the first uh, hurdle here. We challenged it, it survived the channel. So now we can go on to the second step, which is to consider. So we consider alternate explanations for this. So now we go into, we, we, we dig into the research some more and we see what people, kinds of things people are claiming to explain this. Uh, one possibility is that more people are autistic. Another possibility is that the uh, the diagnosis criteria have expanded. Uh, all the things we were just talking about, we've got these multiple multiple possibilities. So we we have to be willing to consider everything. And this is where you really have to open your mind and accept all the possible explanations that people are suggesting, whether you are preconditioned to agree with them or not. And then the final step, C, is to conclude. We look at all these and we conclude which one best fits the data, which one is, is, uh, has the best acceptance among the experts who really understand this stuff better than we do, uh, which one is most likely to be true. And if we can follow that process, then we can pretty much weed out the truth behind anything that we hear. Now, do you use that on yourself as a check? Because, well, you know, speaking for myself, I'm just as trickable, just as inclined to have my beliefs and, and, you know, apply confirmation bias like crazy. I know that I do it. Um, how, how do you control yourself? <laughs> because that's something I always seek to do. So, yeah, I mean, so I do this every week when I'm doing the, the Skeptoid podcast. I, I take some idea in pop culture, some, some belief that, uh, that there's more interesting uh, truth behind than the popular version. That's kind of my basic story. Anything that fits that mold is a great topic for my show. And I do, I, I apply exactly those steps. Uh, obviously I'm challenging it. That's what I'm, that's the whole reason it's on the show. And really where the meat of it comes in is that second part consider where we consider all the alternate explanations you take you, like a, a, even a story like the Loch Ness monster. We have to consider all of these possible explanations for the Loch Ness monster is there actually a monster? That's a possibility I have to consider. 
is it something that looks like a monster? Is it nothing at all? Is it, you know, is it a, a projection from aliens from planet zero? You have to consider everything. And the reason I say that's where the real meat of the episode is, is because that's where we often find the most interesting sociology and history is in some of these proposed explanations. And, um, and it wouldn't be, a, it wouldn't be a very fulfilling show if I didn't hit the, the final point, uh, the C number three to conclude which one best fits the data. So it's exactly the mold for writing a skeptoid episode. Very cool. yes. And I could see where a lot of people get tricked. I, I remember a while back, I'm not from um, the Virginia beach area tradition. No, originally I'm from Tucson, Arizona and the desert is very different. But looking up here, we have great blue herons. And have you ever noticed that when a great blue heron is flying, it looks like a pterodactyl? It's like, <laughs> uh, I've noticed that with pelicans, uh, where, uh, where I grew up was on the beach in, uh, uh, Newport beach area, Southern California. And yeah, pelicans are everywhere and they look exactly like pterodactyls mm-hmm. with that great big long oversized head yeah it's um there's no doubt in my mind that uh, that large actual large birds have been behind some of these reports of uh you know the the ropen the uh thunderbird that we've had over the uh, over the centuries yeah and i also can see the tie where i i at first was like what dinosaurs um are ancestors of birds but you know when i see them i'm like oh yeah i i could totally see it oh yeah 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 or, or even if you go to a uh, one of these nature centers where you can go get pretty close up to a bird of prey, some giant eagle that has claws, talons bigger than your hand, uh, and you just look at you look at the skin texture, you look at those claws, you go, "My God, I'm looking at a Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex in miniature." Yeah, there. Um, it's it can really take you back into into history, just looking close up at a bird. Now, uh, onto another uh, one of your um, topics, you discuss falsification. What is that process? Uh, f- falsification? What? Oh, falsification. <laughs> we're, we're talking about dinosaurs. I thought you said oh, fossilification. Hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shifting brain gears, kerchunk. Okay, falsification. So the... That's the that's the process of of uh, when we're considering alternate explanations and and concluding which one is real. What 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 every responsible scientist does is they try their damnedest to falsify their hypothesis, uh, because if you don't do it, someone else is going to. And if your hypothesis is true, then it's going to survive every possible effort to falsify it. If it's not true, then you ought to be able to break it down very easily. So falsification of your pet idea, trying to disprove this idea you've worked on and you believe and you've tried so hard to prove that it's true, uh, that's an absolutely critical step. And that's, you know, that's something that's drilled into students who are going into research science is the importance of falsification. It's something that really separates the scientists from the pseudoscientists because well, I know many of my friends are working research scientists, and I know that falsification is something that they, it's the main part of their job. You know, when you're putting 50 little trays into the incubator to see uh, what, what grows, um, you're falsifying 49 of those. Well, more often than not, you're falsifying all 50 of them. But on the other side of the coin, people promoting some pseudoscience, really, they, I never see them trying to falsify it. I see them trying to find every little scrap of, 
of evidence or anecdotes that can be shoehorned into seeming to support it. They have a preferred conclusion. They usually start with a conclusion and they work backwards trying to find things to support their preferred conclusion. Um, and that's really how we we would all work if we're not kind of trying to find a, a trying to follow a formal process of falsifying an idea. That's anecdotally how the brain wants to work. We have our conclusion. We have what our brain interpreted and decided, and and we look for things that support it. And we try and make sense of that idea by finding evidence that supports it. So it's consequently, it has become the the major process behind most people promoting pseudoscience, promoting some crank idea. What worries me is, do you find that to be going into the mainstream? Because I'm finding that in political correctness. Like there are some uh, prevailing theories and politics behind what I feel may be considered rubbish, where we don't like the way things are in biology so we just deny them and say, oh, well, no, that's that's not right. And some of this seems to be coming from the social sciences arena. Have you seen that? I, you know, I, I one thing that for me uh, always gets uh, confirmed over and over again is that people don't seem to change very much. Uh, I find that in every group of people, you've got all kinds of people. And that you've got people believing the same kind of things now as you did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and probably will still 50 years in the future. So I think that I and I'm, I'm not arguing this is true. This is just my own perception. Um, I, I think that uh, although we can perceive things to be coming in and out of the news to be more popular now and then, I honestly don't think they actually are. I think people are working and thinking the same way they always have and will continue to do so. Okay, just... Not sure if that answers no, your question. No, I mean, it's, it's just interesting, uh, typical blind spots. Like, uh, for example, uh, most people who are politically right-leaning are quick to say that there is no form of climate change, nothing's happening, everything's perfect, or that that's all rubbish. And then on the, let's say, left side of the aisle, whatever they tend to say, oh, no, um, men and women are not born biologically as male and female, that that's just a social construct that you can change your biology. And I find that amusing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't think that uh, those are particularly new ideas. I mean, they may be specifically new ideas, but they don't represent a new thought process. So, you know, if you think back to uh, when people were afraid to ride trains because going over 30 miles an hour is fatal. Um, it's, it's ideas that people come up with or that they hear or that they just misinterpret and kind of conclude on their own that seem to agree with, <clears throat> beg your pardon. <clears throat> uh, it's just ideas that people, uh, they, they, they find out about, they overhear, they conclude, they come up with their own on their own. They misinterpret something and, Whatever it is, it happens to agree with and support their preferred ideology, be that uh, social, religious, political, what have you. Um, I think that's kind of just a fundamental of poor thought processes that we're always going to find in society. So anytime I hear something like that, I'm not surprised at all. And I, I do my best to try and provide the tools that can help people overcome that. Do you ever worry that um, some of these beliefs can be flat out dangerous? I mean, for example, Steve Jobs admitted you know, before death that maybe he shouldn't have treated his 
treatable cancer by diet, he should have maybe gone and did the procedure immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and there are sadly many examples like that. Uh, yeah. You, you know, oftentimes I'll hear, you know, oh, grandma thinks her poodle is psychic. Well, what's the harm in that belief? You know, it makes grandma happy. And that's true. That's not a harmful belief. However, it is part of a overall harmful thought process, a thought process that can very well become harmful because if you believe that, what else do you believe? Um, and I'm just, you know, to come up with an extreme version of that, uh, what if grandma thinks she's safe from having a heart attack because the psychic poodle will rescue her or, or psychically contact uh, 911 for her? Uh, you know, if, if you believe one thing, where do you draw the line? Um, if, if people can learn not to think anecdotally, and especially where someone's health or life is concerned, and, or, or, um, or your income is concerned, uh, believing in some alternative medicine requires the same faulty thought that would support believing in a multi-level marketing program. Um, I get into debates with multi-level marketing program people all the time. I'm just always advising them, just quit. Cut your losses and quit. The longer you stay in this, the more money you're going to lose, the more friends you're going to turn off by always hassling them to try and join your pyramid. Sunk cost um, fallacy. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 exactly. You, 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 cannot separate, um, you cannot separate harmful thought from uh, anecdotal thought because one inevitably leads to the other. At some point along the road of following anecdotal thought patterns, you're going to encounter something that's harmful. Now this might be out of left field, but how about when it's in a, a profession? Like, what are your thoughts on FBI profilers? Um, FBI uh, or profiling is something that I have had in my idea folder for years, and I've never sat down to do the research and, 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 and cover that yet. I really want to, though. Um, I've, I've heard anecdotally, I've heard a number of really interesting things about it, and I'm eager to get in and do that research since I haven't yet, I'd be reluctant to express an opinion. Um, I, I, where, what I expect to find out, and again, this is without having yet done the research, but based on my experience covering topics like this, what I expect is that there's going to turn out to be some very tangible benefits to doing profiling in terms of the ability to stop crimes and, and, to, and to catch terrorists, whatever. Um, but those benefits will come at a cost to you know, personal freedom and personal liberty that uh, is this going to become unacceptable. And, you know, that's where I draw the line between where my responsibility as a science writer ends and where other people's responsibility as ideologists, philosophists, et cetera, where their, where their part of the job comes in. I try not to get into the uh, society implications of science. I try to stick with just the hard science part of it. Um, that's kind of my domain. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He did a, a very serious takedown sure. of um, John Douglas, an FBI uh, criminal profiler. So I might have misrepresented because you are definitely right. That one kind of profiling is probably effective anecdotally. I guess I was talking about the serial killers and looking in and looking at a crime scene and saying the person is this and they button their jacket this way. And uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole um, 
the whole forensics thing is, uh, you know, you're touching on that. And there's been uh, over the past uh, really 20 years or so, there's been this uh, growing backlash against forensic science as used in solving crimes. Uh, that's another one that's been in my topics folder for a long time and another one I'm, I'm eager to eventually tackle. Um, because these days you tend to hear much more negativity about forensic techniques than you hear positivity about them. So it's going to be interesting to see what's true and what's not. Yeah, I, I really hope you get those because I think about things like the DC sniper and they did not fit any kind of tangible profile of the past. And I wonder if that helped uh, prevent them from being caught because we have a mindset and yeah. okay, we're looking for this person. So if I say serial killer, immediately what pops into mind is age 25 to 40, probably single, maybe not, blah, blah, but there's a whole lot, little laundry list. And if suspects don't fit in that, I wonder if they're overlooked too frequently. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think, uh, again, speaking without expertise, well, <laughs> I have to give, always give that disclaimer. Uh, I think if you are out looking for someone who's been doing serial killings, uh, more often than not, they're going to turn out to be the, the white male and everything. And if you're, if you limit your investigation to that, it's, it's going to hamper it. But uh, I think it'll be successful more often than not. I'm not sure if the data bears that out, but I think it does from what I understand. Um, sometimes you'd have to go with the, um, go with the short odds before you go chase down sure, the long sure. odds. Um, you know, I, I had a, uh, my daughter has um, some chronic medical conditions and we were at a doctor once and out of, out of desperation, we asked the doctor about some particular alternative medicine thing mm. that we'd heard about. And the doctor gave a great answer that I think applies to just what we're talking about here, as well as to so many other things. He says, well, the first thing we want to try is that there's a very small number of treatments that have helped a very large mm. number of people. And so we want to try those first. And after we try those, then there's a very large number of treatments that have helped a very small number of people. So we is can try those second. But you do want to go for the, uh, go for the low, the short odds. Before That's the 80, 20 odds. rule, right? Where 20% affect 80% of the people and then 80% affect or whatever. The yeah, probably in that case is probably more like a 95 <laughs> five. But. Now, how do you deal? Because we, I assume you get a lot of email from people who want to realign your thinking. Oh yes. <laughs> well, you know, especially with, um, with the book out now, conspiracies declassified from Adams media and imprint of Simon and Schuster available wherever books are sold June 5th, 2018. Especially with this, I am getting emails, hate emails. There's been a huge resurgence in the hate emails from anti-Semites. Um, Anti-Semitism runs so deep through the conspiracy theory community. Uh, it underlies so many of these. Um, at well, one point, the, uh, the editors had to get back to me and say, hey, we need to start using the word Jew and Jewish <laughs> less in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, well, okay, not trying to be offensive, but these are the facts. Um, I, I got a great one. I got a great one last night that I won't share because it's, <laughs> well, because I, I deleted it already. But um, they, they come all the time. Yeah, uh, I get, I get, uh, uh, I get a, just a lot of hit and run obscenities. Um, 
anytime you're challenging people's sacred cows, telling them that their sacred cows aren't real, uh, they don't want to hear what else you have to say beyond that. They don't want to hear the real science, what's really interesting, something that, where they might actually learn something. They just want to fight about their sacred cow having been challenged. So there's a lot of people who are um, quite hostile to science-based analysis of Well, you were on a pretty long, or well, I guess a standard, but uh, episode of Joe Rogan, and you guys seem to push at each other a little bit. Um, what, what was the ultimate outcome on that? And what, what, how would you describe what exactly happened? So the, the actual conversation that I had with Rogan was, uh, was, was not bad at all. Um, the problem was that afterwards, uh, somebody, I don't know who made a 24 minute edit of the three hour interview. Um, and the 24 minute edit was very deliberately edited to make me come off like a jerk. Uh, for example, it starts off with uh, Rogan saying, hey, Brian Dunn is here today. How you doing, sir? And I just go like this <clears throat> and I roll my eyes and smirk and don't even answer him. And then Joe goes, oh, oh, well, OK, well, let's start. Said, they're just literally just editing things out of the blue, trying to make me come off as a jerk. Well, this has received last I saw this has received well over 20 times as many views, millions and millions of views on this 24 minute hoax edit compared to the real one. And people who have watched both have said, yeah, completely different person in these two shows. So unfortunately, I think largely because of that, um, there's been, I, I'm clearly Rogan's most hated guest <laughs> ever. Uh, every single day I get, I still get tweets um, that are rarely more than just a single obscenity um, and emails, uh, posts to my Facebook page. I just have to have filters and everything now to just filter these things out. But uh, I was I was really disappointed about that because Rogan has a huge mm -hmm. audience. Uh, Rogan is today, whatever his past may be and things, ideas he has promoted in the past. Uh, he is, I believe, a genuine, genuinely interested in new cool science, is a genuine cheerleader mm -hmm. for science. Uh, and he has on a lot of great guests. Um, I think the mistake I made was going on and challenging him about some of the stuff he's done in the past, promoting conspiracy theories and things. Um, and that kind of, uh, set the whole thing into a very negative tone, unfortunately. So I'm sad that that didn't go well. Um, I think it was a huge opportunity for, for, for both of us and for science in general that was kind of lost. Um, but, uh, you know, that's how it goes. I'm busy on other projects now. Um, my, my films are reaching more people than, than that podcast episode did. So that's, that's, that's a win. Plus, have you reached out to maybe, um, revisit it? Because I know he sometimes has people back like, uh, Jamie, uh, I forgot his last name, but I mean, a guy who really went after him, a, a feminist who kind of came back and not exactly mea culpa, but I guess his was a male mea culpa, but, um, Rogan seems pretty generous and, and very curious. He's a nice guy. Um, but, but afterward, no, the uh, emails back and forth uh, did, uh, did not go well. So that's not something now, I'm pursuing. One episode when I was researching this that I ran into, I was really blown away. There was almost like a seething anger um, toward you from this show called Skeptico. Oh. <laughs> with uh, <Yeah. laughs> Alex um, Sakharas. Yeah, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Yeah, well, that's not just me. Uh, so so he, uh, 
he's um he's someone who is genuinely genuinely very hostile to science and his show although he calls it skeptico it's it's a lot of people jokingly call it credulo um he he basically just promotes he's into psychic psychic powers um um you know the, the he's a big supporter of rupert sheldrake the um uh, the guy who promotes dogs as being psychic, of uh, Dean Radin, the the global consciousness. He thinks that global, um, some some sort of shared consciousness among everyone in the world makes future predictions. Um, kind of all of these wooey ideas. And uh, the Skeptico podcast guy, he's 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 just he's he's a huge promoter of all of that stuff. Swallows it wholeheartedly, and he often tries to have uh, scientists and skeptics like me on. Um, just so he can try and attack us. And I've been on his show, I'm not sure, two or three times in the, uh, back in the early days. And then some mutual listener, uh, I don't know, what was Something that, about like six that. months ago or so, tried to set up, um, uh, successfully set up another revisiting. And um, so he had me on and, and he, just, he just wanted to, he just wanted to make personal attacks against me and other people, other friends, friends of mine. And, I'm sure it was a dull interview because I just said, yeah, no, whatever. <laughs> you go believe whatever you want, dude. Um, yeah, it, that was kind of well, a waste of time. What blew my mind is when he was talking about parapsychology is the most rigorous science. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, how? <laughs> like all those how? chemists and biologists and physicists, they're just wasting their time. <laughs> it's, it's it's easy to make anything look good if you don't employ scientific controls. Uh, you can you can prove anything you want to, the looser you get with your protocols, and uh, that's how a lot of the science is done. That um, um, that promotes and and seems to prove these things. For example, the the global consciousness project. Um, what they do is they have random number generators that they call eggs that people have followers of them have at their homes all around the world. And I, I, I believe what, how they work is they upload their data to some server somewhere, just streams of random numbers. And whenever some event happens, like for example, when nine 11 took place uh, all those years ago, they went to the data and they tried to see, Hey, are there any patterns, any changes in the data right before 9-11 happened. And so their whole science is what we call the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, where you fire wildly mm-hmm. at the side of a barn and then you draw a target around the best grouping of your shots. <laughs> see what I did. So they look at they look at random data, which by its very nature is random. Random is going to incorporate patterns, peaks and valleys. If it didn't, it wouldn't be random. So they go back to when some event of global significance takes place and then they draw patterns draw circles around patterns that they see in the data and they say see our our hypothesis has been proven um they what they don't do is what the scientists would do which is to be uh to try and find uh something in this observation that could it could constitute a prediction we can say okay the next time the patriots win the super bowl we expect to see this change in the data and then see if that gets borne out. And they don't do that. They work completely backwards. So 
that is a total abandonment of the scientific process and a reliance exclusively on a fallacious process. So, yeah, the fact that Alex calls that the most <laughs> rigorous science in the world is, is um, it's, a, it's a tough proposition. Well, maybe they rigorously prop up claims. <laughs> they, they rigorously promote it. So, they wow. do that. I, I was blown away. And uh, honestly, listening to that, he just sounded like a crackpot. <laughs> just. I've never met the guy, so I won't comment on that, but that does seem consistent with the uh, perspectives he has promoted. Yeah. Uh, he could be a perfectly great guy. <laughs> just He didn't comport himself well. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he has friends. I'm sure his mother loves him. But he's he's no friend to now, he's no friend on, to, though, to challenge a little bit and understand things better. Um, how specifically would you designate a conspiracy theory? And the reason I ask this is sometimes people will come up with things, and I've heard you kind of say, "Well, that's not really a conspiracy theory," mm -hmm. but they are dark. <laughs> yeah. So. I, yeah, and, and I've made I've made a statement many times that I still stand by that no conspiracy theory has ever been proven true, uh, and the reason is that is because I'm taking such an incredibly narrow definition of what a conspiracy theory is. Um, it has to actually have existed as a conspiracy theory, which means there is no evidence to support it, and conspiracy theorists have a very specific chapter and verse claim of what is taking place for which there's no evidence yet. And then suddenly, boom, that it all gets proven true. That's a conspiracy theory. That's having a theory of something that's not proven yet. And that your theory is actually specific enough to be coherent and hold together. And if we look back at all of these conspiracy theories that people claim to have been proven true, uh, it turns out that their claim was uselessly vague. It didn't actually predict anything specific or that it never actually existed only as a conspiracy theory, that the facts were already known, the facts were already out in the public. Uh, I got a section on that in the book because that was one of the first things the publisher asked me when we were talking about what to include in the book. And it's one of the first questions people ask me every time we're talking about conspiracy theories is, okay, well, they're not just all fake. What are the ones that have been proven true? That's what everyone always wants to know. So we have a whole section in the book here on conspiracy theories that have been proven true. Um, there's numbers stations, there's MK Ultra, COINTEL Pro, the Gulf of Tonkin, um, and, and some others. And these are ones, in fact, when I was on Rogan's show, we were talking about conspiracy theories for part of the show, and I challenged his listeners, send me any conspiracy theory that you think is true. And those ones that I just read off, those were the most common that people sent me. Um, overwhelmingly, they were sending me MK Ultra and the Gulf of Tonkin um, as conspiracy theories that were proven true. And each one of those fails the test because uh, MK Ultra was not suggested as a conspiracy by anyone until it was publicly revealed. And the Gulf of Tonkin was known from the very, from in fact, as it was taking place out there on the ocean. They were already talking about it on the Senate floor saying, hey, there were no gunboats. We don't think there were. The captain says there was no gunboats. And that was being reported live. So it was always publicly known. It never existed as a conspiracy theory. So the, the one conspiracy theory that I came up with in the book that I will say uh, was proven true was the numbers stations. 
and numbers stations, in case listeners are not aware, uh, are shortwave radio stations. They're not as popular now as they used to be back during the Cold War. But uh, a shortwave radio station, you would turn the channel to a certain frequency at a certain time of day on a certain day of the week, and you would hear a mysterious broadcast that was just a, um, a an automated voice reciting strings of numbers. Uh, it would re- re- say a string of numbers in blocks of five. It would repeat each one once, and then it would go- move on to the next string of five numbers. And there are many of these stations uh, broadcasting from all around the world uh, and on many different frequencies at many different days. And uh, for a long time, nobody knew what these were. And the the conspiracy theorists were saying, oh, that must be evil governments transmitting uh, information to spies. And those who were trying to be a little bit less tinfoil hat about it were saying, no, it's probably something mundane like oceanographic research buoys transmitting their data or, or something like that, something that doesn't require a, a nefarious evil government to explain it. So when I did the original episode of, of, of the Skeptoid podcast on number stations, um, I found out quite a lot of interesting things about what these number stations actually have proven to be. And I talk about those in the book, and it, it really does stand out as the one best proven conspiracy theory and but you know, we can we can we can give the uh, we can give the information on that if you want this is your show or we can let no. people buy the book people need to buy the book people need to buy the book that's a so good essentially, one essentially that's awesome so essentially maybe i finally get it you're not saying you don't believe in conspiracies oh no, no 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 conspiracies don't believe in all the theories time. The, okay. You know, I, I often get charged with that. That's kind of a straw man attack on the, the science perspective of, of conspiracy theories is that, uh, oh, you know, Julius Caesar was killed by a conspiracy. So how can you say there's no such thing as a conspiracy theory? Well, okay. you know, that's what, once something that there was a conspiracy, but uh, there's no record that I've ever seen surviving that suggests that there was ever a conspiracy theory about that, that somebody not Julius Caesar and not part of the conspiracy, said, hmm, I bet all of these guys, and here's the list of their names, are conspiring to all stab Julius Caesar. And his prediction was later borne out by the facts. That would be a conspiracy theory. We don't have that. And that's okay. the case for most of these. Conspir- okay, that makes more sense. Basically, they're future predictions. They're predictions that something very specific is going to be discovered to be true and be found out in the news. Okay. Okay. That, that makes a lot more sense because it, it sort of ties things together. And you're saying that a lot of times um, things like Edward Snowden and the government information, you feel that are screamingly obvious enough that the government's probably looking into our stuff that you, you're not a genius to say the government's probably listening. Well, it, it's not only that. Uh, if you, I have some contacts in the, in the security uh, world and people in the security world had a pretty good idea about virtually all of that stuff. They may not have known the names of the files and things like that that Snowden did reveal, uh, but there was there's never been any serious doubt that essentially all of that stuff was taking place at some level. Um, now, people outside of those security community who had a pretty good, pretty specific idea of what was going on, people outside of that community had a very general and vague notion of, hey, the government's probably spying on us. Hey, they're probably tracking us on our cell phones. Well, you know, that's 
that's great, but it's also, as you say, it's obvious and it's incredibly vague. It's incredibly general. It can't really qualify as somebody having made a specific discovery. Okay, now you've got you have over six hundred and forty episodes, I believe. Now, so. uh, six six hundred twenty something, yeah, over eleven years, which is an incredible number. Um, in all of these, have you ever been really shocked in an investigation? And it doesn't have to be that something had proven true, but just something really shocked you. Like I can't believe. Blank. Yes. So I, I that question is so popular that I had to do an episode specific on that. In fact, let me look it up. Uh, give me one second to type it in here. Um, I did an episode called, I think it was called Things That Surprised Me, because people always wanted to know. Oh, it was a two-part episode. I'd forgotten that. That was back in uh, just about a year ago, June 2017. Um, just you want to give a couple examples here? Of course you do. That's why sure. we're asking it. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say the, the first one that surprised me uh, it had to do with a couple of these things that I grew up believing some of these stories. And we, we were talking about that earlier, how I read all these books on strange phenomena and discovering that they never happened at all. Um, two of these were the Philadelphia experiment. The, uh, you know, that's been TV books and movies have been made about this claims that the U S Navy, uh, during 1943, they took a warship and they did some experiments that made it disappear and when it reappeared, guys were melted inside the deck and all kinds of strange things. And um, then I learned that this was 100% pure fiction made up by one guy literally writing in his parents' basement. Uh, just a, just a, an unfortunately, probably mentally disturbed individual. Um, <laughs> but there's a great story behind how that was discovered and how the truth behind that all came out. Uh, another one was the Amityville Horror. I, I that that book was popular when I was just when I was in like junior high reading about these things, and I was convinced that this must be, you know, nothing could disprove any of the things that were, were reported to be going on in this house. This house must have some malevolent spirits going on in it. And um, then you dig into the story, and when the resident in the house. And his co-author, who was his lawyer, when they started suing each other over the uh, royalty rights, because the movie had made some money and everything, um, the whole story of how they invented the, the thing completely out of cloth came out in court. And we've got it in court transcripts. These two guys made up the whole damn story. So oh, they're wow. suing each other over who's the original author of this stuff. <laughs> um, Copyright claims. Yeah. Taken away. <laughs> you know, um, Flight 19. Um, Flight 19 was the uh, the group of, of five aircraft that disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. Um, uh, after World War II, they were just doing some exercise. And the, the story that we've all heard is that their compasses started going crazy. Um, the sky changed colors. Everything was topsy-turvy, and they were never found again. And it's... You, what what turned out to be the case was that that was, again, pure fiction. The flight did exist and they did disappear, but everything that happened was invented out of whole cloth by this author named Charles Berlitz, who is the inventor of the whole Bermuda Triangle mythology. Uh, what actually happened, and the Navy never had any, never had any confusion over this. It was, it was always very clear. The guy who was the flight leader, um, 
just was a terrible, terrible, terrible navigator. And he led them out to sea. He thought he was in a completely different part of the ocean than he was. He led them out to sea until they ran out of fuel. Um, mm. They were talking about it on the radio as it was happening. There was never any doubt. There was never anything with compasses spinning wildly. It was all made up. Um, and it, But while I talk about these three examples, it's like, oh, that's disappointing. You're throwing a wet blanket on this, this great mystery that I've always enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that at all. I mean, there's so much more to it than that. Why do we know what actually happened? How did we find out what actually happened? Mm-hmm. Why did the fictional version of the story take over in pop culture to the point that everyone now believes that and nobody even knows about the real version? That's where the real fascinating part of these stories lies for me. Also, the psychology of like cheating. I mean, I'm, I'm a runner and I'm always blown away people who cut courses and they cheat and they're not, not going to win but they just want to go to Boston so bad. So they cheat on, on marathons and, and stuff like this. And to me, some of these people like the Amityville horror, it's like, why are you going through all this or, or the Bigfoot costume? Why is it so important to you to scam or, or come up with this story? Is, is it for a celebrity? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, in, in all three of these cases that we were just talking about, they were all, um, they were all for money. Um, I mean, you don't, there's not a lot of money in books, but there's some people do make their living as authors. Charles Berlitz made his entire career out of the Bermuda Triangle mythology. Um, the guys that wrote the Amityville horror um, made some money out of it. Now, the guy that wrote the Philadelphia experiment that kind of created that, he didn't make any money, but he was, he had issues of his own. Uh, <laughs> but certainly other people, the movies and things that have been made about it were made for, for commercial gain. So Everyone loves to take advantage, to leverage a mystery into something that they can make money off of. I mean, look, you, you mentioned the Bigfoot suit. How many mm-hmm. seasons has this TV show had now, which we call not finding Bigfoot? I, I don't understand those. I really do not understand <laughs> those. I mean, at least the ghost whisperer is fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, many of those shows are fiction, but... Well, yeah, uh, reality TV contradiction in terms. But yep. Well, said. that's crazy. So, what do you have coming up now? I know your book is coming out today. Please plug it again. The book is coming out today. Conspiracies Declassified from Adams Media and Imprint of Simon and Schuster. Available wherever books are sold. June fifth, June fifth, yes, two thousand eighteen. Whatever the day is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the book has been um, taken up a lot of my time. So right now I'm back to my two full-time jobs, number one of which is the podcast and number two of which is this year's documentary film, which is called Science Friction. And it's perfect because it's what we were just talking about. Science Friction is about these TV shows that promote these things that are not true. And the specific take that we're going for on this is we're interviewing some of the scientists and the experts who are on these TV shows and who were edited out of context and had their words twisted to make it sound like they're actually believing or promoting these crazy ideas. Um, it's something that's happened to nearly every scientist who's ever been asked to be an expert on TV. So we're, uh, we're not having any trouble finding people that this has happened to. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty shocking. Uh, right now, we are. Uh, this, this is a bit of an interesting project. It's a bit of a hybrid project between our nonprofit and a commercial film. It is going to be 
um, intended to be uh, have a commercial uh, theatrical release to get as wide an audience as possible to help you know advise people, hey, be aware that this is happening. You're not being given the truth on many of these TV shows. But we're also producing it as our nonprofit. We're going to retain the educational rights for free distribution for mm. um, um, through the nonprofit uh, to schools and things like that. So um, the initial production, in fact, all of the production is being crowdfunded. And that's in or- so that when we take it out to get a distribution deal, we'll, we'll be asking for a, a smaller amount of what's called the completion budget, which is the last mm-hmm. chunk of money that it takes to finish the film and get the prints out to theaters and everything. We're going to ask for a smaller amount because we will have already um, produced the film uh, for the nonprofit purposes um, funded by these private grants and donations. So the sciencefriction.tv website is where people can go to see a trailer. Um, see a few of these really shocking um, abuses of, of, of scientific integrity that have, that have taken place. And uh, if you'd like to join us in making this information available to schools and stuff, please consider making a donation and helping us get the film funded. There's even an opportunity for major donors to uh, get an executive producer credit or an associate producer credit, which is a legitimate screen credit and gets your name into IMDb uh, for real um, and makes you, it's a way for you to buy your way into the Hollywood film industry. (laughs) So uh, we are offering that. And there's been a couple of people taking advantage of that already. It's uh, it's exciting times and we're going to be diving into full-time production on that uh, very short order here. Okay. And that's all tax deductible too, correct? It is because we're a nonprofit. Yay. All right. Excellent. Now where can people follow you and so, yes, you can find uh, me, Brian Dunning, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, there's there's a, an account for there's a Skeptoid account for all of those. Uh, and there's my personal account, Brian Dunning. So uh, follow us, get uh, get more information on our programming. Uh, you can come to Skeptoid.com, which is where you'll find the podcast, which is the easiest way to start getting a lot of this material quickly and for free. <clears throat> Um, sign up for the mailing list to, to get, um, oh, I'm also giving away a free book. Why don't I say that? That's the easiest way of all. Come to cool. skeptoid.com slash free book. Uh, it's not the book that's coming out today. It's my previous book, which is called Masters Mon- <laughs> Massacres, Monsters, and Miracles. And um, that book is absolutely free. It's, it's an ebook for your Kindle or your uh, iBooks device. Um, and that also gives you access to all of our programming and everything, all the all the emails and stuff you can get from that. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. And maybe we'll have to revisit after your film or uh, another book. I would, too. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.
Christmas. 